Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, this is uh, Captain Chris. I want to welcome you back to episode 10 of the Speckle Truth Podcast. Can't believe we're about halfway through the podcast season of season one, which is crazy. And we've gotten just a tremendous amount of uh, followership and, and notes and messages of just people and you guys enjoying the podcast. And so today, pretty special guest from the Alabama Gulf Coast, Patrick, Captain Patrick Garmison. What's up, buddy? What's up, Chris? Man, I'm no. uh, I'm super excited to be on this podcast. I, I, I listen to y'all every every time one comes out, and um, man, it's a it's a cool opportunity to be a part of it. So thanks for asking me. Absolutely, brother. So we actually have a little bit of a relationship that goes obviously beyond this podcast. And uh, what two years ago, when we we're at the Biloxi Boat Show. Even before that, mm-hmm. uh, we were kind of in contact with each other. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was talking to I was talking to Captain Patrick Garmison, and I read your article and didn't even kind of know it was in actually Saltwater Sportsman magazine. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, the one they had, uh, that Bob McNally did. That was a great article, man. And so I, after we kind of established that relationship, got to finally meet you at the Biloxi Boat Show and kind of established kind of a continued friendship throughout the course. And so I've seen you now at both of the boat shows and really just enjoy one getting to know you dude as a, as a dude, as a father. Uh, but outside of that, honestly, as a, as a big trout guy. So I don't want to kind of tell everybody about you, man. So, so if you can tell our uh, listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, man. Um, so, uh, not born in Alabama. I was actually born in Pennsylvania and then, um, folks moved me down here when I was five. And so, but this is home. This is where I grew up. Um, my dad and mom had a fishing pole in my hand, probably as early as two years old. And, uh, man, I, I've, uh, just always enjoyed fishing and being a part of the, in the fishing community. And, um, man, I, I tell you when I really got bit by the speckled mm-hmm. trout bug was, um, you know, as, as kids and young adults, we would, um, we'd find a boat, you know, we'd have a boat accessible and we'd go out and chase the birds and just catch numbers of trout. And really outside of targeting a trout under a flock of seagulls, I didn't really know how to target a speckled trout at all. So, um, I got involved with the, uh, fishing club, at, uh, Alabama coastal fishing association and got into some of those tournaments and man, people started pulling these, they were pulling five, six, seven pound trout to the scales and, Mm-hmm. Here I've lived here my whole life. I'm I'm joining the club around probably 25, 26 years old, and I didn't even honestly had never even seen a speckled trout like in the in the five or six pound range, and it was like, holy crap! I had no <laughs> idea Mobile Bay had this. So I'm like going to people like, where did you? I mean, just in a in general area where did you catch a trout of this size and they're like oh yeah we'll catch them in dog river 
out in the bay, Mobile River, whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, these are all areas that I've obviously frequent and um, never even knew they existed. So when I got to put my eyes on a big speckled trout for the first time, I was hooked and I was like, all right, I want to figure out how to catch these big fish and I want to do it quickly. And um, so anyway, uh, that was, that was really what got me into, to even, you know, just to being excited about a big speckled trout first time I got to see one and uh my actual first experience of catching one was um my buddy Adam Barker and I we were uh, we were actually fishing some live shrimp free line over uh near the Mobile River and I caught my first five pounder and man the the thing jumped and tail walked and all kind of crazy stuff like I'd never seen any speckled trout tube before yeah and um we get my uh, Adam nets the fish, and I had a digital scale handy, and I and we had a tape measure handy, and I measured it. It was a full twenty five inches, weighed five pounds exactly on the digital scale. Yeah. We took some good pictures, and man, the next thing I could think of was just how fast I could get the thing back in the water and released, and just to, you know, just to complete the whole process. And uh, yeah. we got dropped it in the water, gave it a little tail wag, and it kicked splash water in my face and i couldn't have been <laughs> any more excited about a, a dang fish in all my life right there yeah so, and dude isn't it funny man how they kind of do that especially i don't know here in texas it seems like the super salty water they're like you know what we're gonna throw the super salty water right in your eyeballs <laughs> <laughs> as a way to say you're a jerk but thanks again for letting me live yeah you know so it's right. kind of like it's kind of like a a rite of passage more or less, but it, it is funny how they, they tend to do that, but that's cool, man. That's a good story. So about how long ago was that though? Well, uh, probably 14, 15 years ago. Oh my gosh. And, um, okay. man, so then immediately after that, after catching that first fish, it was like, Oh my God, all, all I could think about was how to catch more big speckled trout and, and, um, and bigger speckled trout. And, and a lot of what we did, um, kind of getting through that because I learned a lot fishing with, uh, with my buddy, Adam Barker and, mm-hmm. and, uh, Jim Foster. And we, we spent a lot of time live bait fishing and stuff, but we, we did, we did really notice that a lot of bigger fish, we were able to catch them or at least get them to, to show themselves on top water. So then we started getting more into the top water world and then, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, just, you know, and then it just goes from there into all the different hard baits and soft baits that you could think of to throw at them. But um, that's how I really got into into getting and being able to uh, to, to hook and catch one was uh, it did start with live bait. And then we started moving into artificial bait and we and we do a little bit of all of it now. Uh, but man, there is something special about feeling that, that big fish just thump a soft plastic mm-hmm. or, a, or a hard bait under the surface or, or blowing up on one on top water. I mean, the biggest yeah. one I've caught to date is an 805 and, uh, caught it down in little lagoon and Gulf shores. And it took a, um, it, I was working a seven M mirror lure, the ones mm-hmm. that the three hook mirror lures that, yep. that's right underneath that, the surface that float. Well, yep. I was working it like pretty quickly and felt like I wanted to have that action to where it stayed under the water. And for a brief moment, I let it float to the surface and that's when she ate it. And she, hmm. and this fish came and took the lure off the surface, like with precision 
uh, so much so much precision that it barely made a swirl you know everybody's like oh my god i bet that thing just blew up like a like a hand grenade going off or something i'm like no actually this fish was like really intentional about sucking this bait off the top and just moving on about her business and um luckily i got the hooks in it and uh and got it to the boat but that was a real special moment there and it's crazy man how they do that it's like a subtle kinetic is kind of the way i see it so like yeah if you're yeah if you're throwing like tnt in a in in a water it's just this huge explosion right and it's all of a sudden it's like throwing an m80 you know and all of a sudden it's just like this lighter explosion doesn't necessarily create a whole lot of you know uh on the water kind of commotion but uh, there's intent and there's like you're saying precision intent of like you know what i'm gonna eat this and i'm not gonna miss it in the crosshairs fire go and so that's that's a cool and dude seven m's you know again i've reiterated in a couple of articles with Doc J Wright, even talking with Doc J on the uh, podcast, and that's one of his favorite topwater plugs, is actually a seven M. I caught actually quite a few fish this year, uh, early fall on a seven M. Dude, that thing, it's an old lore, quote unquote old lore. Yeah, but it gets it done, son. Just that twitch, and you can kind of keep that cadence like you're talking about. Keep it just below the surface, six to eight inches, and yeah, when it floats back up. I mean, they rip it. Whoa. And it's one of the more fun baits, especially as like a rip bait kind of slash top water. So that's Mm -hmm. cool, man. That's a great experience. But I wanted to ask you, so you saw a big fish, you got involved into a fishing club. You then caught a big fish. Before you caught that big fish, though, you said you kind of wanted to learn more about it. And so these were areas you were fishing, you were seeing these big fish come out of. Mm-hmm. From the time you saw those big fish and from the time you actually caught one, was that, was there intent like of you going to pursue it? Like, did you change your approach oh, and mentality yeah. and everything? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean the whole, the, from the, the, the bait short, like, like I said, we did a lot of it with live bait and it went from, you know, we would just kind of cast net whatever we could catch or, or we'd just take whatever shrimp at the bait shop we could get. And then we, we realized that if we were going to fish with live bait or live shrimp that we needed, mm-hmm. we needed big, big live shrimp. When you wanted, we wanted to find things. Uh, and then when you got into fishing with live pogies or live croakers or anything like that, you wanted to get the baits that excluded the smaller fish to your best of your ability and it just was so counterintuitive to to traditional fishing of of putting a bait of of a design you know of something you know something that a a say a 15 inch fish Trap. Mm-hmm. bigger any you know a redfish a flounder whatever anything yeah. of of that size say 12 15 inches um if it could consume it that was really what we what we aimed to put on our hook for bait and um, mm-hmm. the initial thing was like, all right, well, we got to, we got to get up the game and what bait choice we're using and, um, and exclude some of those bites. And as soon as you figure out that you're like, all right, in order for me to catch more fit or more big fish is I have to figure out ways to exclude those smaller bites and keep that's my it. line in the water better. And that's interesting. I mean, but, were you still fishing those 
like same spots that you were some, catching like yeah. smaller fish some of them some of them we were fishing the exact same areas and then others we were uh just it, just variations in our setup uh where we may mm-hmm. have been where we may have been pushing up pushing the boat up into say a shallow um you know kind of an area where you might get hung up a lot we would actually position the boat over top of it and fish out towards deeper water prior and mm-hmm. here to come to find out the boat was sitting on top of where the fish were actually the bigger fish were actually feeding so where we would get we would get disgusted with casting towards shore and and getting hung up we were we were doing it all wrong we may have been still catching fish uh but we were catching the smaller fish on the edges of the school or or maybe not even speckled trout. We may have been throwing out and catching white trout or ground mullet or something else that mm-hmm. was that was neighboring those fish. So it was uh, th- there were a lot of enlightened moments that that started to you know that that started to come around whenever we started digging in deeper into how to catch these big speckled trout. And it was um, mm-hmm. it really was a big mission of mine for for several years and. And not to say I have it perfected by any means, but I feel like at least now, uh, even if I go into new waters, I at least have a better idea of at least how to how to start looking for a bigger fish. Yeah. So so walk me through that process for you, because I mean, I'm, I've fished a number of different estuaries to include Alabama, but for you specifically in Alabama, because I, I'm interested to kind of see your thought process and maybe for our listeners from North Carolina, Virginia, even here in Texas or Florida, if that's something that may transcend for them, you know, in terms of like their approach, and that would maybe give some confidence, right? And that's part yeah. of big fish fishing is having confidence in your approach and abilities. So walk me through in terms of kind of like what your approach would be to a kind of a newer area or if you're looking for a big fish. Well, the, the visual clues first, I'm liking Mm -hmm. to, um, finding areas that are going to have, have decently clean water. I actually try to avoid those areas that are super clean. We don't see a lot of that in, Mm -hmm. in Alabama, but occasionally we do get some super clean water and it things, I actually like to try to avoid that and try to find somewhere where there's a little bit of a mix of of that brackish and, and, um, and salt water, or maybe even mm-hmm. just fresh and brackish water mix, depending on the time of the year. Um, uh, structure, ex- structure is especially important in the, um, in the warmer months. It doesn't seem to be structure doesn't seem to be near as important in the cooler and colder months. Um, it seems like there's a lot of times where it's, it's really about finding, um, finding the, the bulk of the fish, and, but mm-hmm. then just keeping your bait size larger, um, and, and fishing. And actually a lot of times I find that a lot of our bigger fish are going to be, uh, more aggressive on top of the, on top of the school. So like that 7M mm-hmm. that's barely working under the surface or like, um, that, uh, like Joey Langer news, uh, slick lure, u- yeah. utilizing that bait and um and doing a slow wind retrieve over top of the school and and that bigger fish uh finding the ambush to to be mm-hmm. able to come up through the maybe through the smaller school of fish or a lot of times i see them mixed in with l- like large mullet and stuff so um those are some those are some clues that i'm looking for um and then like like i said in that in those warmer months in the summer um 
finding you you need to be in the saltier areas uh, because you know a lot of times or most of the time they're always going to be looking for um, for that saltier water for for where their eggs are going to have the most chance of survival in the spawn. Um, and I feel like they they utilize that structure to be able to protect those those uh, those hatchlings and stuff. So they um, they'll utilize that heavier, denser structure like uh, like you'll find out in the middle of the bay in Mobile where we have uh, gas rigs and stuff. Um, around Dolphin Island, we've got a bunch of oyster beds and, and grass beds and stuff. And those areas tend to to hold really big trout. And um, and you're not going to it just doesn't you don't find them as randomly out in open areas. It always yeah. seems like they relate better to structure in those warmer months. Okay. But in wintertime, I mean, you're fishing typically shore, not necessarily more so structure. You're looking maybe for some water clarity. Bait, obviously, I would imagine mm-hmm. you're probably always looking for. Yep. And, um, yeah. I mean, like, like this past weekend, we, we had, a, um, we had a tournament and, and all of the, we caught some really, really nice fish and they were in, um, they were in the, uh, in a, in a creek or a, you know, a shallow river. Um, mm-hmm that just kind of had a, a small subtle bowl to it there was there was uh there was limited structure on the bottom but the, you know the fish found found that area to be a um you know to be a safe place and the, i guess pot you know away from predators and there was plenty of mullet in the area so they really had no reason to leave so they'll probably yeah, be there yeah. until the till the water starts to warm back up now y'all see a large influence, just like Louisiana back home for me, uh, especially when the rivers get high for y'all. So explain kind of the Mobile Delta a little bit. I, I know a little bit about it. Y'all have a couple of rivers north of ten, mm-hmm. right, that are actually flooding the delta, and yeah. so you get a lot of freshwater influence into your estuary. Oh, we have a tremendous amount of freshwater in our estuary. We have uh, 43,000 square miles of watershed dumps into Mobile Bay. I didn't know um, it was that much. Yes, it, it, it goes all the way up to Rome, Georgia, uh, mm-hmm. almost to Tunica, Mississippi, and it's a big funnel that comes all the way down. Um, and uh, pretty much everything south of the Tennessee River comes through and, and into Mobile Bay. So we're hmm. constantly watching uh, river stages in the, we, we watch them year round, but it's, 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 it's especially important in the, uh, in the fall and winter months. Mm-hmm. So like we're watching river stages at the Alabama river and the Tom Bigby rivers. Cause those are the last two major rivers that are going to dump then into our five rivers, the Appalachian, Tinsall, Blakely, Raft and Spanish and, and Mobile and, and those areas that all end up down in right into Mobile Bay. Um, so when you're talking about a 43,000 square mile watershed, it it doesn't it really doesn't take a whole lot of rain once the once the grounds are saturated up there for pretty mm-hmm. much every bit of rain that lands on the ground and on people's roofs and highways that it ends up in the creeks and rivers and ends up in our in our uh, fishing you know, in our, our, uh, yeah, habitat backyard, down here. So, yeah. um, so we, we certainly are constantly playing the, uh, playing the, the, you know, w- watching the rivers and watching mm-hmm. the, watching the, the river stages and, and then how is that going to affect water clarity and, and salinity and all of that. Yeah. So, man, there's, um, what... there's a lot of times where we're, we're fishing in areas that, um, 
really, you know, if you were to taste the water in pretty much 95% of the areas that we fish, you'll, you'll, you'll tell us we're crazy because it is straight fresh water. And that's, it, that's interesting to me. It, and so I would, I would liken that to fishing in Venice, Louisiana. Uh, obviously you have one of the largest rivers in the world, uh, and that's watershed and then mm-hmm. it just dumps right there. But you're talking about one of the kind of more perpetual producers of big fish in the state of Louisiana. I would, I would probably say Venice is probably your number one producer of trophy trout. Used to be, you know, Pontchartrain would give it a run for its money, but lately it's been kind of Venice when the river gets a little lower. Now, when it's at flood stage, I would say it's probably a little bit more difficult, but when it comes down a little bit, you still have, I mean, just a a ton of big fish. I say a ton, a lot of big fish being caught out of the Venice area. Uh, And that's just something that's really unique because I've kind of always had to play that card a little bit in terms of watching the river and how high, how high it is and its effect and impact to a fishery and maybe how your approach is going to be in terms of your plan, you know, fish and port sulfur empire, because it's, it's directly connected to that watershed. And so moving to Texas and into Florida, you know, even Mississippi to some extent, because you can get away from it, even though there is watershed, it's probably not near the amount. Um, and so you don't really have so much of an impact there. And it's kind of nice because you can start to develop a, a little bit more consistency in terms of your pattern. Now, for you guys, y'all get a ton of rain up north. Mm-hmm. Man, you're having to completely abort uh, some of the areas that you were fishing, or, oh, or are you yeah. just approaching it wrong? Is that is that kind of wild in terms of that thought process? No, no. Now, uh, now that we're talking more about the delta fishing, it's um, it the the delta and the up any of the upper bay. Um, there's a, there's a lot of really, really good fishing that can happen in those areas with good water quality. And that as soon as those rivers rise and we start getting that, that down in our area, man, it, it can take a really good bite one day and completely shut it out for Mm -hmm. potentially weeks. I mean, it could be two or three weeks where you don't get another bite in an area that you were just smashing the fish um you know one area in particular that um really was a real productive area for me this year was over on the eastern shore around Daphne um it's not one of those areas because it's out in the bay most people by the time they're getting into like November and December they're thinking all right all the fish are are, or the bulk of the fish are pushed into the river systems that's where you got to go fishing and we were catching them out there in two and three feet of water out in the main bay and um the the fishing was really really good and then we got a rise in the river and i had i went from two and a half foot of visibility to zero i mean like one inch of visibility (laughs) and just completely just flushed out all the fish where they go that's the next question is like where did all those fish go that were up there uh because there's a i mean it was a huge slug of fresh water that came down um and just completely wipe that area out. Not, you know, that's the, that's the million dollar question for us is like all of the guys around here, we all, we all kind of keep tabs on where these fish are and we're on them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we get a slug of fresh water and then it's like, all right, well, you know, you would think if they don't reappear in the same spot in a week or two, once the water improves, where did they go? And, um, you know, so that's, that, that's some of the but, stuff that we chase a lot around here. 
But I think you're getting to that. And that's this is like the perfect segue to one of the topics I wanted to discuss with you. And I know you've been participating in it. Uh, and that's so CCA started a trout tagging program in the state of Alabama. And that's something you as a charter captain and part of the guide fleet are producing and so or are uh, participating in, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about the tagging program that you guys have uh, in the state of Alabama and then how you got involved and then kind of what some of that, what they're going to use some of that data for. All right. So I think they started it two, it's two or three years running now. And it's, um, it's a, it's a collaboration of Dolphin Island Sea Lab and and it's funded by the CCA of Alabama. Um, and it's an ag it's a angler tagging program. So any angler, any Alabama angler, um, if they just join the CCA, uh, mm-hmm. they get uh, they can get a uh, a kit for where they can go out and tag their own fish. And right now that they're doing uh, the angler tagging program is specifically for speckled trout and redfish. We have orange mm-hmm. tags for redfish, green tags for speckled trout. Mm-hmm. You report them on a website. And then we hopefully, hopefully we hear back from some fish and I've had, I've had numerous fish, um, recaptured and, uh, get some, get some stats on them. And a lot of the yeah. fish that I have recaptured are redfish. They, they, they're a lot easier to tag throughout the summertime and throughout the year where I just feel like if, if we get one on board, I can tag it and get it out of the, get it back in the water pretty quickly. And it, and it being a good, good you know, it's still in good shape when I let it go. Yeah. So we, I tend to tag more redfish over the year, but we do do a lot of trout tagging. Um, have and, you had some trout recaptures? Um, I think I've had two trout recaptures just here recently. And, mm-hmm. uh, both of them were, uh, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, both of them were, uh, were recaptured within several hundred yards of where I had originally tagged them. So what um, was the what was the duration of time before tagging and recapture? Do you one remember? of them one of them I think was like forty days, and one of them I think was like a maybe a hundred and twenty days. Wow, um, that's actually pretty it, long. And they but yet they they pretty much stayed in the same area. But the areas where we tagged them uh, were um, I think I think heck I think both of them were recaptured in Theodore Canal, which is a which is a deep it's a 40 foot deep channel off of the bay that will pretty much have the ability to keep salt water in it all year round, regardless of how bad the bay gets. It's just, there's just not enough. There's, there's not enough fresh water to come down and dilute 40 feet worth of salt water. So there's always some level of salt water in that place. That's um, interesting though, that they've kind of stayed put or at least found some like comfort. mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm interested because the 120 days, you know, before recapture is really interesting to me. My dad, I mean, uh, as you know, I mean, 12,000 tags, Mm -hmm. I think he's on like 800, 900 recaptures. I think the longest one dude he's had like out before recapture has been like 220 days. And that was like one, the majority of the recaptures that took place were honestly, within like the first month, month and a half yeah. to like f- plus three months. So we're talking what, uh, 90 days, maybe mm. 120 days at max. Right. Um, so 120 days is actually a pretty long time. 
Yeah, and and um, man, I'll tell you one of the cooler stories that I've heard just out of our area is my buddy Jay O'Brien tagged a fish. He tagged a five-pound trout on the Gulf Beach out out front of Fort Morgan. Um, it was like I, I'm I'm gonna throw a date out there. Just say it was it was in June, and he um the, he got recapture data on it like right at a year from the date in the no same kidding. location and it and it increased its weight by one pound no kidding yep so that's one of the cooler uh trout stories that i've heard on a on a tag and uh tag and recapture yeah so i mean okay you're talking about a pound a year i don't know if you listened to the the thing i did with doc weiss the podcast there where they actually cut out the otolus and aged them and they saw like what the three percent of the trout that they actually uh, harvested, you know, grew up to 25 inches in like three years, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we always think of these big 30-inch fish as being genetic freaks. Well, that kind of shows that even just in that simple recapture, that that's probably not one of those. Having said that, it does show that if you release a fish, the survivability is probably pretty high, especially a fish of that size. And in a recapture, that puppy's still growing, man. She's healthy. She's growing. She's growing at a normal rate and uh, she's basically contributing to the estuary, you know? Yeah. And that, dude, that to me, that's, I think, the tremendous value of like these tagging programs or like getting the data. And I, I know I've asked my pops this. I haven't really necessarily got an answer. And that was like, okay, you've tagged all these fish, you got all these recaptures, but I know you're not the only dude tagging. But what is like Department of Wildlife and Fisheries or like what is CCA now that it's CC, like, what are they going to do with it? Because, you know, just looking at his own recapture, kind of like what you're talking about, hey, we're probably seeing some sort of like environmental condition or area where these fish are going to stage. In my dad's case, he's he's recaptured four of his own fish within the exact same month in the exact same spot. And so that shows that, dude, as, as long as bait's there, the ideal living conditions in terms of salinity, uh, excuse me, salinity and water temper there, those fish aren't moving. And it grew an inch in one month. Yep. So it shows, dude, like just in a, I mean, a, a really small, tiny, tiny little data set, the value of like showing that, hey, there's this fishery, this estuary or part of the estuary is pretty healthy and it's contributing to the overall st- you know, you would think contributing to the overall stock assessment. And so I don't know if like Alabama or would you said the uh, Alabama Gulf Coat or well, we research have, lab? Yeah, we have Dolphin Island Sea Lab and um, and then the uh, CCA of Alabama are the it, two partners in this. And um, and I actually, did sh- I did get a little bit of info from them if you want to hear it. Yeah, hell yeah. Because right, <laughs> I so, want to know what they're going to use it for. So, um, so what they're going to do is they're, they're working on writing up the first couple of years of redfish tagging data. So we started the redfish before the trout, and then they're hoping to have that published this year. So they're going to have um, several years of, and then they're going to have some something published on that. Um, we don't care about no redfish, so, man. Well, Come you got to start somewhere. Like I said, Chris, you got to, you, you got to, <laughs> you got to practice on the dumb fish that that you can beat up and throw them back real easy. So I'm joking, man. You know um, my disdain for those things. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry, I know man. it. I know it. So, um, 
so anyway, we're planning. They're planning on uh, having a meeting soon to announce the top taggers and uh, for this year or for this past year. And uh, the funding mm-hmm. is going to help with the graduate student program, and that's okay. what they're hoping. That's what they're hoping is is really going to be the the uh, the facilitator of the data, you know, and the use of the data is is um, is creating and promoting a graduate student program to then for them to then pick out different segments of the data to be able to analyze and and write Thank some you. papers on and come up with some uh, come up with some you know some thesis on on the uh, you know what what data they're seeing. And then hopefully be able to start seeing monitoring mortality rates and health of the overall inshore of the redfish and speckled trout for our area. Um, dude, that's 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 and, so badass, dude. That like you're actually getting some younger guys right in involved into yeah, doing some research, like mm-hmm. actual biologists taking a look at the data. The data's there, man. Like yeah. And then just simply like doing the nug work and then analyzing it. Look, I'm stupid. I'm not going to lie. And so like my very, very tiny little brain, brain only has like can compartmentalize a few things, especially as it's fishing related. But having those guys who are much bigger brain, more analytical, taking a look at it and then maybe seeing a much larger scheme or maybe some tighter trends in terms of those data or data analytics, that's, that's going to be super cool. And so when are they going to publish that? That, or start well, to start well, to research it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, right now we'll have the redfish. It looks like uh, one of the students has already done is or is working on completing the redfish par- portion, mm-hmm. and then we'll start seeing some other stuff. You know, it may take another two years before we really start seeing anything, just to get enough data to really, you know, have yeah. s- where they can start drawing some conclusions or drawing, you know, some similarities or whatever they want to try to pull together and, and create a, um, create a paper on, but, um, they also, um, really their biggest, they, they have two big threats to this program. One is we need, we need the anglers to participate and tag. Uh, there's a lot of people that they kind of get excited about the idea of like, Oh yeah, I want to be a part of the tagging program. Well, the thing is, is they can have their tags in their boat, but they got to use them. And they got to report that data. So we, if we, if we have the anglers out there doing their portion, mm-hmm. then we're then we've got that part covered. Then the other part we need is is there in the in the um, in the marine biology uh, portion of, of uh, you know of the uh, Dolphin Island Sea Lab and and uh, South Alabama. They're going to have to continue to keep somebody um, interested in wanting to uh follow that graduate program and as long as we have those two things and we've got some funding from cca and cc and i talked to um i talked to blakely ellis today about it and he's like man there's no way we're backing off of this thing as long as we have uh, as long as we have anglers involved and they're wanting to do it we're not we're not taking our foot off the gas on this project at all so that was very encouraging hell yeah that's badass dude because and it can be lost, especially, and especially in the anglers. I mean, I've seen my pops and his kind of operation in terms of his tagging process. And it's, it is time consuming. You're like, oh, I'm going to go pop a, you know, a few tags. I mean, the fact that he's dedicated a lot of time because it is, it's very time consuming to catch a fish, especially when you're on a hot bite. 
dude, you do not want to put your rod down and stick a stick a pin in a fish and then release it when you can basically throw them right back and then maybe catch another one, you yep. know? So one, it's kind of a little bit of self-discipline or, uh, in the instance of my pops, man, he actually had a really, really good system. And so it, just to share that a little bit is like, yeah, I'd love to hear what he did. Yeah. So, so in his yellow fin, which is obviously one of the key components, but it doesn't necessarily have to be because you can create your own live well system. And so I've known folks that have created a big live well uh, out of 120 quart igloo, you know, and basically run like an aerator pickup, like an actual, um, aerator that you would uh, not an aerator, a bilge pump, excuse me. And so as long as you have a pump that runs to a separate battery, or you can run it to your like trolling motor batteries, what you'll do is you just have the spray bar that comes down and you're creating basically an oxygenated live well system. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the dudes that fish like redfish and redfish tournaments, they would do that. Now in his boat and the yellowfin, it kind of had that kind of built in. And the same with his Maverick, his Maverick's got kind of something similar, but those those are really, really good live well systems, but you can create your own. So what he would do is he'd, he'd get on a pretty solid bite. And what he would do is when he'd catch the fish, he would immediately take it off, throw it in a live well. And then uh, he would catch like, if he was on a hot bite, he'd catch 10 fish because it was allowing him to kind of keep track of his kind of the, the amount of tags that he had. So he'd catch 10 fish. He'd have them in there. They'd be kicking around and, and, and all lively and everything else. And then he would pull out. He had in a little bitty uh, like Plano box. He would pull that out. He had like his little dart tag, his tagging applicator. And then what he would do is like a little notepad. And he'd have that before he would actually leave to go fishing, he would write down all the tag numbers. So let's say he was like 001. He'd have 001 all the way to like, let's say 0100, mm-hmm. right? And in that way, he didn't have to input all that stuff. Instead, he put 001, he'd pop that tag, that fish was, let's say, 16 inches. He'd write 16 inches, throw it back. And then he would, after he was done his day, he knew based off of kind of where he fished, um, he would then fill out the actual cards and then put all the stuff online. And so it was honestly a lot more prep work and then having a self-discipline to like catch 10 fish pop them, release them, and then get back on them. And so that's how he was able to kind of, instead of doing one by one. Now, another thing is he would obviously manage the actual life of the actual fish. So if the fish is in that live well, just kicking around, doing really good, or if some was like, you know, kind of hooked a little bit deeper and it was kind of having some trouble, kind of maybe going belly up or on the side or a little bit, not looking great, he would harvest that fish. Yeah, He, did, he wanted to give every possibility of that fish living uh, a chance after he popped that, that tag, you know? And so that was just a little bit of his process, but a lot of people think of, Oh, I'm going to go tag fish. And then as that fish comes over the side of the, the, the gunnels, um, popping that tag and then releasing it. Now, if you're in a kayak, that's a totally different situation. You know, you'd probably have to do it one by one, but if you're in a boat, either consider a live well or a ice chest live well, it doesn't have to be 120 quart, but you can probably get like a 50 quart uh, and then you just basically use a bucket, get the bucket or the water out of the bay and then just pour it in there. And then once you do that, you can hit the recirc and you got your spray bar and you're adding oxygenation and it's right from, it's the water right from where you're catching them, you know? And so it's really given a, a good opportunity for those fish to live and you can kind of manage that process. So that's just his, but, um, 
Anyway, yeah. but that goes back to one of the things you were alluding to earlier when you were telling me your, your first big fish story, and that is you release that fish. Mm. And for me, that's something that I've tried to incorporate a little bit more and be more mindful of this year is like the actual care of the fish after you catch it. And so I, I have never used a landing net ever. And so this year I'm actually, I've actually used the landing net. And the reason for that is after talking with like folks from CCA or some, you know, friends at, at the Gulf coast research lab, dude, anytime you can limit your interaction with the fish, with your hands or not put undue stress by using a bogan, holding them straight up and down. If you can support and cradle the entire uh, length of the fish that helps with survivability. So, um, is that something you've, you've kind of done or developed or incorporated or have seen that helps or, or what? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I would say without a doubt, if you, if, if your if your fish is, um, if you, you know, the one thing that I get, that I get a little bit nervous about is if, if I've got a fish hooked with treble hooks, if it's, mm-hmm. you know, say a top water bait, that's, you know, it's hanging out of the side of its mouth or something like that kind of on its side of its face. And, and, and you go and you net that fish. What is the first thing that that fish does when oh. it's in the net? It freaking it's rolls. Rolling, baby. It rolls <laughs> yeah. like a dang alligator and it'll roll that whole thing up, net hooks, everything. And now you're, now you're in a bad situation. Now, now right. I feel like, now I feel like the fish's life is threatened, uh, at, you know, at, at having a good survive or, you know, at had, having a good yeah. release. Uh, so I'm kind of, I kind of err on the side of if, if I see the fish coming in and it's trouble hooks and I know that, you know, I'm strictly going to catch this fish to take a picture and let it go or take a picture, put a tag in it, let it go, whatever. Um, I would prefer to try to land that fish, just take it, take my time, get the fish up alongside the boat and, and stick the boga grip or a fish grip mm-hmm. or something like that on its lip. And then bring the fish in, de-hook it, take your pictures, measure it, whatever you want to do, and then mm-hmm. let it back in. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, if you can have your hands a little bit wet when you, when the first time you touch the fish, it's good. Um, you know, you and I talked off the air. I, I think I almost feel like um, guys that are waiting uh, have a little bit of an advantage over a guy in a boat on having a good successful release because, you know, nine times out of ten, their hands are going to be a little bit wet. Uh, the fish, the fish, they're going to be able to bring the fish up to alongside them, and 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 a lot of times be able to just grab that thing with the with the boga mm-hmm. grip or a fish mm-hmm. grip. And then the fish is, you know, then it's done. You can keep the fish in the water the whole time you're unhooking the fish. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think about those sort of things. But in the boat, if, um, you know, if, if you're not using treble hook baits, if you're using soft plastics or just single hook baits or whatever, um, I think using a landing net is the right call because you you can, you can manip, you know, you can hold the fish in there pretty good and get it, mm-hmm. take care of it. And, um, and really, I mean, heck, I was just at the hatchery the other day where they take, where there are in full, you know, they're taking care of fish. You know how they get fish out of one tank to another with a freaking net, you know? So (laughs) nets, we, we kind of get, get kind of anti-net at some point, but they're down there trying to keep all these fish alive. And if they have to, 
do anything with a fish, they have to net it. So they transport it. Yeah. yeah. So um, I wouldn't be overly, I wouldn't be overly worried about nets other than that, that potential of them rolling up with treble hooks. And then you got a little bit, you got a whole different situation on your hand. And dude, that's a nightmare. It, you know, that's kind of one thing. And I actually bought a, I think a pretty decent quality net rubberized, you know, try to go spend a little bit more and kind of a net. It floats obviously, but I don't want treble hooks getting caught in nylon or, or things like that, dude. Cause I try to be efficient. And not only that, dude, I mean, you know, it as probably as well as anybody, <laughs> those fish, it's kind of like once they actually see a net, they go bonkers. Mm. And then, so what happens is, is the, the, like you're talking about where that back treble is caught in the you know, side of a fish's face. And all of a sudden he beelines it to the net, that front treble gets snagged on a net and that a fish shakes free. It's, it's like, Oh God, what a headache. But, <laughs> you know, it's like, dude. so, I mean, but like what I found though, is like, you know, I would wear the, I would wear those fish out so I could grab them. Right. Cause I want to make sure I'm playing them out. And so I'll keep them there. I'm kind of going from left to right to try to get the perfect angle. So I can really use a lot of grip strength to push down on that fit right behind that fish's head and grab them kind of one fail swoop, come through the water and then hold that fish up. Well, you know, again, that's a lot of compression on the, on the back, on the, on the side, you know? Yeah. And, and so that's kind of where I was getting, I was like, and not only that, I mean, from even times fishing stupid redfish tournaments, you know, you would want to get them in as fast as you could because that if you played them out too much, once you put them in the well, they're hard to actually kind of rejuvenate, you know, and, and kind of get back. They've, they've exhausted so much energy that if you can kind of fight them a little bit more, have that kind of fail safe. Now, if the fish is going crazy, obviously play it out a little bit more, but you, you can kind of take more risk, if you will, netting a fish. Uh, that has a little bit more energy versus just totally playing them out so you can just grab the fish. Um, anyway, that, and it just goes back to curling, but I didn't know, I'm not gonna lie dude. like, I didn't know y'all actually had a trout hatchery. Y'all have a trout hatchery in, in Bama? We, we do. We haven't, uh, they just started this program. We, uh, so we have the Claude Petit Mariculture Center down in Gulf Shores mm -hmm. and the old facility many years ago, they did raise trout for a little bit. Um, and they've done redfish and they've done different things. And then the, the, the new center that we have now, uh, there for a while, they were raising pompano and mm -hmm. redfish and the redfish were, was highly successful. The pompano, they had a little ups and downs, but now the pompano is kicking butt. Um, so now, they uh they recently added southern flounder because our southern flounder population has been has been down for the last several years and they just i mean like within the last three days they just had their first uh hatching of flounder um of you know the flounder eggs me, me and my son went down there and they have these they have several tanks and they said they have estimated around seventy thousand baby flounder in the tank and you look down in there and it looks like little bitty um mosquito larva right now oh that's and, cool um, man so yeah they're super excited about that um and then we'll you know seventy thousand may turn into 700 release flounder by the time it's all said and done we don't know mm -hmm. how what the uh what the success rate will be on the first go but 
you know, fingers crossed that we maybe see seven, 7,000 or, or more fish come out of mm-hmm. it. Uh, then they, so they, all right. So I, I went down the wormhole there, but anyway, um, <laughs> cause I'm, I'm, no, I mean, I'm but, pretty excited but about speckled. the, pretty excited about the flounder. And then the, then the speckled trout, they are replacing the redfish. So they booted all okay. the redfish out and now they're going all in on speckled trout. And, um, and I went down there and saw that brood stock and, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to help contribute to a lot of that brood stock through, um, they're taking some of the, uh, marine biologists down there with me. And we, we, uh, we went into dog river and, and caught, caught a bunch of fish out of dog river one day and they put them in there in the brood stock. And then we just had, uh, my, my fishing tournament, the winter classic. And yeah. we had uh 16 teams, two day event. We, we were able to collect, um, I think by the time they got collected and draw and taken to the hatchery, I think we ended up with like 55 or 60, um, speckled trout that are hanging out, ready to be brood stock. And, um, and it's, it's a really, really exciting to be involved in that and watching that process. Yeah. And, um, they, they hope to start having, uh, little speckled trout babies sometime, uh, sometime later this spring. So, um, and that's awesome, dude, because I knew the Gulf coast research lab right there in Pascagoula ocean Springs area obviously had their hatchery because mm-hmm. we work with them, especially with the boat, boat show and stuff like that. And you know, understanding that process. Now, I think it was lost on a lot of people that do like, you could actually contribute. Like if you, if you wanted to, they would tell you it has to be caught in like a certain area. Um, just from a, like a genetic, I guess, deal. And then, but anybody could go out there and actually catch a fish and then obviously keep it as long as it's in pretty good health and condition, actually donate it to the Gulf coast research lab and they would take it, put it in a decant decontamination tank and then ultimately introduce it into the actual hatchery itself. And then, and so they were having a really big, uh, they didn't have enough males as part of the hatchery. And so I think they said like every male they had, uh, service, like every eight females or something like that. It was, it was way off track. And so I asked them, I'm like, what, what's the ideal ratio? You know, like honestly, the ideal ratio would be one to one. Oh, no. really? yeah. So, well, that's and, really cool. And not only yeah, that, so, not only that, the male trout they say that they only get about three years of service out of them. Hmm. Whereas I didn't a, know that. Whereas a female, they could, you know, a female could could provide them good, healthy eggs up until the fish is seven or eight years old. No kidding. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. That's. That's pretty awesome. But I mean, is it the same situation though, where like general public average angler who's maybe wanting to make a difference or, Hey man, I got enough fish in a freezer. Let's actually go and contribute to the actual health of the fishery. Let's go and catch some fish to donate to, you know, the lab or the hatchery. Def- they could do that. Yeah, or- definitely. Um, and it's a little Who- bit, of, it's a little bit of a process of, um, uh-huh. making sure that you know, do you have enough fish that will justify sending a biologist down to where you are or, Mm -hmm. or you making the trip to the hatchery? And, and so, I mean, there's some variables there, but like in the case where, where I took the biologist with me, um, I mean, we had the truck, they brought the truck with aerated tanks to the boat ramp and we left, Mm -hmm. went, caught fish, put them in my live well and, 
and we had the we had the um the ability to be able to keep any size fish so whether it was 12 inches long or or 20 inches long we were keeping every one of them um and trying to just maximize how many fish we could get in there as quickly as we could and um, so the blue wave did a good job at keeping all of those fish alive i mean 19 speckled trout at one time is pretty was pretty solid for two tanks we had two live wells on the boat yeah heck yeah now is this in response to or a result of kind of the the limit changes that you guys have experienced or is this like an effort to help with that so that's a good that's a good question chris because that is uh that the limit changes and the whole public discussion of um that led up to the limit changes really made them think that, Hey, you know what? Redfish have been, have been really easy for us to do. Um, the, the stock assessment says that redfish is in good shape. So let's utilize those redfish resources and the redfish areas towards speckled trout. That is now, it's now on the front of everybody's mind of like, Hey, you know what? We, we have seen a decline in population stock assessments agree that population is down. Uh, so let's, let's give the, the redfish the boot for a, a while and focus on speckled trout. <laughs> now I got you. Now to me and, and following this via social media, obviously through you guys, Rich Rutland, some other folks, Joey Gates, uh, you know, those folks mm-hmm. that I know that live on that, on the Alabama coast and fish that fishery, uh, a lot of our followers, man. Um, it seemed like it was a, I think unlike most other states, it seemed like it was a pretty consensus notion in terms of like support as well. So like, in other words, like speckled trout assessment said that speckled trout are in, in the overall population are down and recreational guys and the charter fleet were like, Hey, we need to do something about it. And we're open to the notion of reducing limit or putting in a slot, I think is what you guys have now, right? Is it a slot? We do have a slot. And that is, um, I mean, really that came down the, that came from the general public. Uh, okay. So there's the general public wanting the demand for the slot. Yeah. I mean, the people that were showing, people that were showing up for the meetings that were voicing their opinion on the matter were like, Hey, you know what? We not only do we generally enjoy catching speckled trout we we really enjoy catching bigger ones and um so why not protect the larger fish and and so the general public actually was um was the driver behind that slot limit and um and the and the reduction in the creel and you know i mean i have customers that have um they they have been with me many years where we could catch we could catch our 10 per person speckled trout and they have now seen the six per person speckled trout. And they're telling me, Patrick, we should have been keeping five or six speckled trout all along. Anyway, this is not looking back on it. Why were we keeping that many fish? And, and I, I'm, I've been really impressed with, um, with, with their acceptance of it. I mean, because they're paying me to come down here and harvest some fish and catch some fish. And, but at the end of the day, it, most of my customers are, are, 
more appreciative of of the fishery and want to see the that they can keep coming down here for the next 10 15 20 years and enjoy being able to keep catching fish and and if there's an issue with it let's not let's not keep beating it up and and in 10 years we're talking about hey where'd all the trout go i don't even know what to say other than the fact that alabama right now is like the benchmark for angling and biology um stewardship of a resource you know and being on the same page you look what two states to your west in my home state of louisiana and I mean, dude, it might be a freaking civil war before it's all said done. If the if they reduce the uh, overall uh, creel limit from twenty five to whatever it is, and then go it go up from twelve to whatever, mm-hmm. there's just so much general angler disdain for oh, there's no there's no problem, there's no you know, and it, it's not to say that there's less. I, I've always been on this side of the house, man. I'm not saying that there's less fish. I do think there are less fish. But it's not result of over harvest. I think it's generally more, less fish because, dude, we don't have any friggin' land left yeah. over there. You know what I'm saying? Like the coastal erosion is ridiculous. And so as a result, that biomass just isn't replenishing. And obviously, if you have more anglers on the water, taking more of that resource, and there's just not enough to kind of kind of replenish that. Yeah, you haven't. But even then, though, dude, like 25, you know. 12 inch trout per person per day. That's like reeling in a wet sock. I'm not going to lie. I mean, a 12, you know, it's well, it like kinda, a 12 inch trout is like reeling in a wet sock. splashes on yeah. top for a little bit. <laughs> right. So dude, I mean like a 15 inch trout. Okay. You got to make a couple cranks. You might have to stop reeling a little bit and put a little pressure and then, you know, you can t- continue to fight that fish and that's a nice fish. It, it is. You know? Yeah. I've but been, I've, I've been, I've been really pleased with the creels that when we do harvest fish, when I'm looking at the box, I'm like, you know what? That six fish limit doesn't look too bad when they're all when they're all 15 to 20 inches or, or whatever yeah. we're catching, and it's um just just nudging that up from 14 to 15 inches has been pretty cool to just to see how that's happened. Yeah, it's just cool to see or uh, enlightening to hear anglers, scientists all be on the same page for doing something good for their fishery in a resource and, and not having a lot of blowback and not having a lot of people that are. And so that's where I think you can start to really develop some change in a fishery is when you have like groups that are using the resource. Cause dude, you're trying to make a living. They just want to go catch some trout. And so when you have these two kind of both on the same page, dude, that's only going to benefit the fishery in the long run, you know, at least I would think it, I guess time will tell with the overall creel reduction and, and the slot limit and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm interested to see how this transpires, but Texas just went five fish coastwide, um, from upper coast up there in the Galveston complex, all the way up to Port Arthur, all the way down to lower Laguna Madre. And so that, you know, kind of remains to be seen too, if that's going to have an impact. I'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors. As you know, we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout, as well as our conservation. Fortunately for us, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky support that same passion, which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this would be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. 
I really like talking about fishing. I do, man. But I love talking about a resource because, you know, you go back to telling the story about your first five pound fish and or, or seeing your first big fish and how it made you feel. And mm-hmm. dude, seeing a big fish, catching a big fish, targeting a big fish, and you finally do it. Oh my God, man. It like just lights it like lights this fire. And then the more you do it, it stokes the coal and fans the flame and just gets worse and worse. But (laughs) dude, you're so right. I know. I'm sorry. But like the, the trout hatchery here in Texas parks and wildlife, one of the things that's really cool. And I think knowing now that you guys have a trout hatchery, knowing you guys are taking the appropriate, uh, uh, approach to managing your fishery collectively, uh, here in Texas, dude, they introduced, and I haven't really shared this, but I went back and took a look. So I know through Doc Weiss's study and Gerald Horse and the one that he participated in when they cut out the otolus that these fish typically get to 25 inches, roughly between four and six years. Now you have those genetic freaks, two, three years, obviously those are there, but typically around that, let's say four to six year range. Texas Parks and Wildlife, the I say one of the only, but really the only base system that they've stocked consistently here on the Texas coast is East Matagorda Bay. Guess what? Last year, and I'm not saying, I am saying there, there could be some notional uh, relationship there, but we had twice as many trophy trout registered in the trophy trout citation program and Dirty 30 program than any of the, any of the other parts of the coast. And oh, wow. so is that a direct influence in terms of, Hey, Texas, and it wasn't a little amount. It was 6 million trout fingerlings. I have it. I, I have, I have the article and everything else. And so you're talking about an introduction of 6 million trout fingerlings over the courses from 2013 to 17. And now it's 2019 and 20. So if you think about those fish that released in 13, 14, if you go based off of Doc Weiss and Gerald Horse's study, those fish are now probably 27-ish inches, especially here in kind of a longer growing season here in the Texas uh, coast because it's warmer. And you obviously have more ideal conditions with higher salinity and stuff like that. And so so there's two things that I take away from that. One, um, dude, having a, a hatchery contributing to your fishery you can, there is direct correlation that you can actually grow a trophy trout fishery Two, And this is on the angling side is that if we have limits and we have the mindset to take care of a resource long-term, do we, are we going to sustain that? Or are we just going to say, man, fishing is really good on these big fish. We're going to harvest the hell out of all these, these big, big trout. Um, and now we start to see that decline because if they discontinue the, the, the hatchery program releasing in the East Matagorda Bay, we've now maybe seen an artificial bump and now it's kind of back to normal and fishing quote unquote sucks again, you know? Yeah. And so it, you can look at it from two different sides of the house, but I think the like artificial introduction in, of, of trout into a fishery, but proper management can sustain long-term for a bigger trout fishery. And dude, that's why I'm passionate because if that's the case, you have a big trout fishery for folks to experience a lot of like catching these big fish and and really 
relish their splendor of like holding that fish and releasing that fish and it, it contributing to back to the resource. And that's a good thing, dude. And I think Alabama is setting the benchmark in that. And so I just had like this aha moment. I can't shut up. Because <laughs> <laughs> no I love it, dude. I love no it so much. I do too. I appreciate, I appreciate your, uh, your admiration for what Alabama is doing because I'm, I'm like uberly excited about it. I've, that's why I've been trying to be involved as much as I can. And, um, and, you know, like I said earlier, at the end of the day, I mean, I want not only do, you know, I, I, I do make my living on the water and it's important that I have a healthy fishery for customers to come and enjoy, but it's, Man, it's just equally as valuable to me to know that my seven-year-old son in 30 years is able to enjoy a, you know, a, a really healthy fishery that we can, you know, that we can all, that, that he and I will be able to enjoy as old man. And we're, you know, we have, we don't have to sit here and talk about, man, you know what? It really used to be good, but yep. you know, back when you were back before you were born, man, you remember it, you don't know, but it was really good then. And and I don't want to have those conversations. I want to have the conversations about how good it is now and how good it's getting. And and we've seen that, you know. I hate to go back to the redfish thing again, but we we have we've actually seen that with the redfish through you know through stricter limits and and re and and the hatchery and all that. Since I was a kid to where I am now, it is far easier to catch a redfish and more redfish. So I really see that there's a great potential to be able to have a, a, a better speckled trout fishery in years to come. And dude, like I'm over here, like silently I had to come on. I had to actually put myself on mute because like, I'm like doing fist pumps and everything else because you said there's two things you said, a fishery getting better. And I heard on another podcast, I can't, it might've been Salt Strong or even Tom Rowland. I can't remember, but if you think about it and it's kind of sad to think maybe in, in some of the States of fisheries, because I'm thinking back to Louisiana, man, the fishing was amazing and it's, I don't live there anymore, but you know, again, my pops lives there. He fishes there. He's fished there for 60 years. And so, uh, times when he was a boy to times now are completely different in terms of production. Now, not to say the fishery's gotten worse, it's just declined a little bit, right? But why can't we, on the other side, make it go up? So the, the quote that I heard was, it's sad to kind of think that from a child's perspective or somebody just getting into the fisheries that right when they start getting into fishing in their fishery is like, that's the best that they'll ever experience because it yeah. will continue to decline. Now, we want it to get better. Right. Why can't we go back to the damn good old days? Right. Where they're just smashing, you know, a lot of fish where you pull up to whatever point and and catching them hand over fish. You know, you hear this, but you kind of got to give a little bit to, to, to take to some extent. And so let's do that. You know, let's let's think about it long, you know, from a long term perspective as opposed to that short term. So I don't know, dude, like I love this stuff because it makes me happy to just see that people, you know, anglers are taking, you know, their own fishery kind of in their own hands and everybody's on board with that, you know, and a scientist. And, and so, Hey man, let's make it, let's make a change. So that's, that's awesome, dude. Holy yep. smoke. And it's, bro. you know, and, and, and it's really important to, it's, it's, 
extremely important, not a little bit important, but extremely important for the professionals, the, the guides, whether, whether they're here in Mobile or they're in Tampa or wherever, mm-hmm. if, if they focus on, on educating their customers on, you know, harvest what you need or what you, you know, a, yeah, take a, what you need, harvest, harvest enough, a har- you know, take what you need, release the rest yep. and enjoy the, enjoy the fishing experience. And more people, more guides sell trips on the experience and not on the on the actual harvest. I mean, because eventually, if 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 you keep doing what you're doing, and we have diminishing water qualities, and we have other issues that that are directly causing, uh, you know, the the problems. But we're trying to rebuild them on our, you know, the best we can. If we're if we're continuing to, to excessively harvest, it'll never be able to catch up. Yeah. So if we do some education on our end, I mean, I, I have I have three customers, anywhere from one to three customers on my boat, and we get to talk for six hours about fishing and about the environment and about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I I choose to I choose to educate my my guys and my and the ladies that are on my boat about you know things have maybe have declined, but here's my goal. My goal is to yeah. to do what I can to make it better. And, um, you know, and I would encourage other professionals, you know, fishing guides while they're having their conversation with their customers, talk about that. And, and let's, let's figure out how we can all work on it together and, yeah. and make it better. All while experiencing the resource, targeting yeah, a big exactly. fish or, or whatever it is and making it fun. Right. I mean, dude, that's, that's a good guy. And that they'll book you, they'll rebook you cause they've connected with you. And so, uh, so first off checks in the mail, man, for mentioning all that, because it almost seems like kind of bribed you in that regard, dude, in terms of saying all that, but dude, you're spot on, man. Cause that's kind of something we've been preaching, you know, that for a long time, dude. And, mm-hmm. and that's just getting guides to kind of be more engaged in that, in that regard, dude, and taking what you need and releasing the rest. So Checks yep. in the mail. I'll make it. Who do I make it out to? Um, just Patrick. Ugly fishing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pass that, all that through the business account. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, man. Fair enough. I'll write a speck of truth check. All right, uh, nah, dude. So uh, we're at an hour, uh, but I don't want to. I don't want to kind of quit. I want to ask you a couple of questions, man. Kind of getting back to kind of some fishing type stuff, but um, all right. Yeah. So in the mobile complex, what are what are some of the lures that you typically throw and break it down maybe by like time of year and an approach to and a, a artificial dude. Don't, don't talk to us about no live bait. Man. I know. I know. I'm such <laughs> the, I'm such the, the, uh, the, the redheaded stepchild. I'm, so, I'm such this, a snob uh, dude. I'm sorry. Stuff. I'll see you what in like three weeks, man. You can punch me in the face at the, at the show. <laughs> no, go, not, go for it. All right. So, um, I have, uh, for the longest time I've been an MR 17 mm. mirror lure black back orange belly. If you saw me throwing much of anything else, it was, um, it, it was probably cause the water was really, really muddy or something, mm. but I'll, so, so my hard baits are going to be the seven M mirror lure, okay. the 17 MR. I have friends that only throw the 27. I love the 17 and I don't even know that I own a 27. I just love the smaller profile bait. Um, I love the, uh, here in the recent years, uh, 
I mentioned it earlier, Joey Landrino's uh, Slick Lure. Yeah. Uh, that thing has, that man, we really caught a lot of fish on that thing uh, that helped us in the, in the tournament this past weekend. Um, Do you like a certain color in a Slick Lure? Or? Well, here's the crazy thing is of all the fish that made up our, our, our creel over the two days, I think we caught them on six different colors. Hmm. So it was a, it was a pretty crazy range, but if I were, if you were just to say, all right, grab one slick lure and go, it's going to be cool beans. It's okay. uh, his cool beans color is, is very similar to that, that, that you would see um, other lure companies call open and night. It's mm-hmm. kind of that uh, clear purple kind of color and that thing is i have caught fish on it in in probably three inches of visibility to three foot of visibility it's 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 crazy how effective that lure is do you throw it on a weighted hook or an unweighted beast hook i i end up using the the weighted beast hook nine times out of ten uh but if i'm in a really really light wind situation uh really calm conditions and mm-hmm. i'm fishing in water that's probably shallower than say six feet i'll go with the unweighted but okay. there's so many times in the winter time when we're when we're fishing when we're really fishing that slick lure a lot uh that you just have so much wind and um or you might be in an area where you've got a little bit of current and um that weighted hook just does does really well for me and it allows me to cover the water column better. I mean, because there's sometimes where I'll jig that thing up and let it sink all the way to the bottom, and they whack it right when it hits the bottom. Uh, sometimes they hit it. Sometimes they hit it on the way up, mm-hmm. or or when it's coasting down. But there's a lot of times when they stone that thing right when it hits the bottom. I got you. So, do you throw a lot of soft plastics? Soft plastics. Uh, I've and I really like Joey's uh, the little slick. Okay. Um, putting that one on the jig head. Um, I like any type of finesse type bait or, uh, or flute type bait. Yeah. Uh, something that's just a, you know, just a skinny minnow type bait. Yeah. Yeah, Something like that. Um, and then man, if, if, if none of that, if, if those are not working or I'm just trying to figure out what they want for the day, uh, I like, I like to throw that matrix shad. Mm-hmm. And man, I tell you what, there was, there's some homers around here. There's a lot, there's a lot of matrix shad homers that, yeah. that are like, man, the only, the only, the only bait you can catch trout on is matrix shad. You know, they, they're, they're, they're fully bought in. And, and, uh, I remember the first, the first time I heard all this talk about matrix shad, matrix shad, I'm like, man, it's just a paddle tail. It's just a paddle tail. What are you talking about? Yeah. And uh, chat and Chaz and I were talking about this at the last boat show, and and I was and I was like, man, I picked up one of those jigs, and I had not been catching anything in this particular area, and I throw a damn matrix shad out there and catch a trout on like the first cast. I'm like, all right, well, maybe there's something <laughs> to this, and uh, and I have seen some crazy results with that paddle tail jig. So yeah, um, I, I I like I, I will definitely incorporate that into the mix. Gotcha. Um, and then, um, but man, those, and then I'll tell you one other bait that I didn't mention is, is, uh, throwing a rattle trap. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Throwing, a floating uh, throwing, or a regular? No, no. Half ounce, okay. half ounce gold side, black back rattle trap. And it's, um, Interesting. Throw, throwing, uh, throwing the rattle trap and then the, um, the booyah, um, have a, what is it called? A knocker or one knocker or mm-hmm. something like that. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a nice lipless rattle bait, half ounce in size, um, yo-yo that joker over some deeper water. Um, this, uh, it's it's a it's a really really effective bait when you're around pogies like in the in the fall when the pogies are real thick in the rivers and the trout are just kind of suspended in those pogies yeah. um man you throw you throw a rattle trap through there and either burn it through there or or yo-yo it through we have caught some absolute hammer hammer speckled trout hmm. near the uh like on the edges of the river channels and stuff in the fall um probably one of my one 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 pretty cool story on that is my my buddy and i jim foster and i we were fishing uh we were pre-fishing uh, it was a several days in advance of one of our artificial bait tournaments that we have in the winter and we made a drift down a bank and uh throwing throwing rattle traps and we catch um we each catch like a a, a five right at five pound trout on our yeah. first drift one of them's throwing a throwing the the black and gold and i think one of us is throwing silver and pink so silver and pink is a good good one too but the black and gold is my go-to and we like boom boom two five pounders we're like wow that was pretty solid let's make another drift so we go back down make another drift and we catch we catch two sixes and a four on the next drift and we're like all right that's five fish that would crush any tournament we ever fish so let's mm-hmm. leave these fish alone and we like <laughs> literally took pictures we, we were like super excited and we hauled butt and we left these fish. Well, and, and then the 43,000 mile watershed of Mobile Delta dumped <laughs> a bunch of, bunch of rain and water and, and uh, totally ruined our spot. And we didn't catch another big fish there the rest of the fall. But it was um, hindsight. We should have sat there and just kept catching fish because they were some beasts there. It was an absolute blast. But Anyway, went down a went down another wormhole there. But, uh, <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. So, but those uh, are those uh, are some those are some of my um, mm-hmm. some of my go to baits, and then one other that I really like is a little uh, Yozuri El Minnow. Okay. Uh, so all the other baits we talked about are fairly fairly large. The the Miradine um, MR seventeen is small, small, but yeah, and then that that El Minnow is small and. Um, Man, that thing will catch some big fish too. It's a pretty, it's a pretty nasty little lure. Do you throw like any other lip jerk baits? Uh, I'll throw a Rapala X Rap. The uh-huh. um, I, and and I like the I like the sevens over mm-hmm. the tens, but the tens the tens are good too. Okay, I don't know why, but there's a lot of those baits, a lot of those uh, hard baits. I tend to go on the smaller side, um, but then the soft plastics, I don't mind going a little bit bigger. bigger. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, cool, buddy. Well, thanks for sharing that, bud. I uh, appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you throw. You typically. Uh, you typically use braid or, or mono. Or yeah, what? I braid braid with a fluorocarbon leader. Um, mm-hmm. If on um, and then I really range my leader length based on what I'm throwing. If it's a if it's a bait that I'm probably not going to take off all day then I'm fine with like probably an 18 inch leader. Uh, if it's a, if it's, if it's on a soft plastic where I might be getting hung up and broke off, then I'll, um, I'll probably start with like a three foot leader, just something that I, every time yeah. it breaks off, I can, I can tie another jig on there pretty quick. And you. then, um, but I didn't mention top water, uh, top water. I like my, um, I like my pink skitter walk and my, my pink one knocker, uh, the bone, uh, spook junior, 
those are uh, those are three pretty solid top water baits for me. Yeah, and I like to go with a shorter, uh, probably like that, maybe even as short as like a twelve inch leader on that, and go with maybe like a twenty or twenty five pound leader, something that's mm-hmm. nice and stiff. Pure and, fluoro uh, or what? Or you do uh, go go braid go braid to 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 fluorocarbon. You okay? I no, just, I just man, I just keep it simple. Like yeah. I I I keep um I keep my stuff to where if I need to interchange from one rod to the next. And I mean, I don't have to, I don't know. I'm not as much of a rod snob as some guys are. Like I, like my buddy, Richard Rutland, he, Richard has like 125 rods on his boat, one for each lure that he throws like a bass guy. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not as snobby at it as it, as he is, but, uh, Richard will, Richard, Richard starts talking rods, my eyes kind of glaze over. But if he starts talking <laughs> lures and trout, then I'll I start I start listening. So it's oh, pretty funny. funny. Yeah, well, I used to fish redfish tournaments against him and his pops, man. Uh, me and Brandon Treadway, and uh, Rich is a good guy, uh, and it was cool to see him um, kind of, you know, launch his charter business. I think he's working for Bobby Abascado, right? Or he's still no, or no, uh, no, he's got his own thing. His yeah. is cold. His is cold blooded. Cold blooded. Yeah, he yeah. was though, right? I thought working for well, Bobby. Bobby, a. yeah, Bobby was Bobby was his mentor, and him and Bobby mm-hmm. are really close. They actually uh, fish a lot of tournaments together. They are uh, they are definitely two peas in a pod. The two of those guys, yeah. man, and they're they are some big trout slayers. They they uh, they beat me this past weekend in the in the Winter Classic tournament. They snuck, they, they, uh, they snagged a freaking heavy bag, uh, yeah. or not really. Well, they had two heavy fish on, on Sunday. And, um, anyway, they, they, they just, they got us by like a pound and a half, two pounds, something like that. But Richard, Richard snagged a really nice trout. So Bobby was, Aiken uh, fish, man. Oh him my it, God. Those two him. guys are, 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 as, are da- they're as good as it gets. I think that it, those two together. Yeah, we we lost so many tournaments to Bobby and Scott. Uh, is it Scott Ritter, I think, and Bobby Aberscott. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Is Scott still there? I don't even know if he's. Nah, Scott. I don't. I don't know. I haven't seen Scott around in a while. Yeah. He uh, Bobby told me that Scott gets into something. He gets all in. So if it's yeah. like surfing on in Costa Rica, he's going surfing in Costa Rica. <laughs> that's if cool. it's going hunting whitetail in in Saskatchewan, that's his thing for that. So he's uh, I got you. He's an all-in cool, kind of guy. Yeah. We've gone down yet another wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> we, we shot, probably should have did that offline, dude, but I'm sorry. It's, it's fun, man, to kind of uh, catch up a little bit. But, now, you know, with regards to that, did, did you have like a mentor getting into the guy business or no? Man, um, a little bit. I mean, Richard helped me a good bit. Uh, Richard and I actually got our captain license at the same time. We both got our license in 2010. And he was more aggressive and pursued the guide business pretty much right out of the gate. Uh, that same year that we got our license was the same year as the oil spill. And I, I really treaded on it lightly. Like I'm like, all right, well, is this oil spill going to totally wreck our fishery and so on and so forth. And so I played it a lot more cautiously and ended up taking on a, a full-time job with a, with a landscape company for, for a couple of years. And, and while I developed my brand and, and, um, and just kind of built, built some, built some, uh, 
you know, some uh, skills that I didn't have, like in the business side of things and sales and marketing. And I finally got to the point where like, man, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go fishing. And, uh, yeah. that's cool, <laughs> and, man. and, uh, so I've been, I've been full time now for three years, uh, going into my fourth season and, uh, man, I couldn't have, couldn't be any more happy about my decision doing that. It's been, it's been an absolute blast being, so how did, uh, being a fishing guide and being a, you know, being, and also being a steward of our environment, you know, just trying yeah. to make awareness of what we've got going on. Yeah. So how do people get a hold of you, bud? So they can give me a, they can text me or call me at 251-747-1554. Uh, I have a website at uglyfishing.com, U-G-L-Y-F-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. And, um, and then if you're, if you're on social media, I'm on I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. I do mostly Facebook and Instagram, uh, but I do have Twitter, I have a TikTok, I have YouTube. Dude. So um, <laughs> I try to be I try to be out there. I have LinkedIn, you know, whatever whatever is uh, whatever's happening on the social media world. I, I'm I have I'm dabbling in all of it. So. Simmer simmer down now, man. No, it. The reason I asked you to do that is because last time I was on uh, with Matt Chipperfield, and I, I don't do plugs very good, man. I mean, you know me as well as anybody. I don't really care for that side of the the business, but I know you're running a business, and I appreciate your time, you know, being on the podcast. And so, if folks are interested, especially in the Alabama coast, I mean, it's not necessarily noted for its fishery like Texas, you know, or Florida. But if people are interested and are down there vacationing Gulf Shores. Orange Beach, whatever, uh, and they want to actually do do book a trip, man. And just definitely want to push them your way, bud. So, anyway, well, I appreciate but, it, Chris. And it's and, and and you're right. I mean, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of info out there that says that hey, Alabama's a great saltwater fishery. So uh, we are kind of a, a forgotten little area here that people don't know about. So it is, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to get on here and yeah. talk fishing with you and. Yeah. And uh, get get I just I just got all excited about speckled trout fishing and I and I've been freaking speckled trout fishing all week and I'm ready yeah. to go at it again right now. That's it, man. That's it, baby. It's uh stoking the coals. That's what I do apparently pretty good. But uh now nah, I appreciate it, bud. And I'll see you in a couple weeks, man, at the Biloxi show and uh we'll definitely catch up a little bit more there. And then honestly we'll be at the Mobile show. So if you'll be there too, I'll, I'll, I'll see you a yeah, lot I'll, in the next two months, man. All right. I will be at the I will be at the Mobile show pretty much the whole time. The okay. Biloxi show, I'll probably just drop in for a day. Okay. Looking forward to it, brother. All right, big dog. Well, I appreciate you being on the show, bud. And uh, for everyone else, hey, I really appreciate you sticking up. This is actually a, a little bit longer episode than what we've had in the past just because a lot of information I want to talk about. And I honestly run my mouth too much. And so <laughs> I want to... Um, share that and i don't know man it's I, I love the passion especially for our our big trout fishery and when i think people are doing it right just like talking about it anyway yeah. uh so if you're gonna be in a an, on a gulf coast so i i said it last podcast i'll say it again the 7th 8th and 9th of february we'll be there at the mississippi gulf coast coliseum at the biloxi boat show we love to see you there so come on out if you've listened to us at, at this point in the show uh, definitely come on out and see us if not we'll be at the mobile boat show in march which is the 6th through the 8th of march and so come out to either one of those come by say hello 
uh honestly man just come chat chat it up with us and we love talking trout fishing so hope to see you guys there but um as every other time in the in the podcast you know we always want to kind of leave you with always taking what you need release the rest tight lines and until next time guys god bless take care bye now